Go ahead and open them up to the book of Genesis chapter 18 as we continue verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Word of God. Genesis chapter 18. If you're new to the Bible, that's okay, but it's an easy one to find since it actually is the uh, first chapter, or the first book, I'm sorry, of the Bible. Genesis, Genesis means uh, beginnings, so that's relatively easy to remember. Genesis chapter 18. Beginning at verse 1. Read along with me if you would, please. And then the Lord appeared to him by the the terebinth tree of Mamre, is what we read, as he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought to wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, Make ready three measures of fine meal and knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf and gave it to the young man, a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and calf, the calf in which he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, well, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself. She said, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, well, why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, you did laugh. That's the end of that conversation. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and sent them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham that which he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have have done altogether according to the outcry against it, as it has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. And he gets into this beautiful haggling session with God. Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. So the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham said, answered and said, Indeed, now I am but dust and ashes. I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose that there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find there forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose that there should be forty found there. And so he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose there's uh, 30. 30 should be found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of 30 there. And then he said, Indeed, I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And then he said, Let, the Lord, let not the Lord be angry, 
And I will speak yet once more. Suppose that there should be found ten. He said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, I want to thank you for the privilege of this time. I pray you would redeem every second. Lord, you know the very dust under our shoes, the vapor of water in our breath. You know every hair on our head. And you who hold all things together know every molecule within our bodies and keep them assembled. And God, in all of this, we come to you. You are that intimate. You are that clear in knowing us. Well, then certainly you are aware of every need. You're aware of every failure. You're aware of every fear. You're aware of every insecurity. You're aware of every great cry within our heart and everyone that should be and isn't. And God, I pray today that you would, that you would minister to each one of us individually as well as corporately. God, that you would take who we are and draw us close to you. Lord, that you would fire us up for you. Lord, though I don't know where everyone is, you do. And if there be any who have yet to know you, let this be the morning of their salvation or this afternoon of their salvation. For those who know you, draw them into a deeper and more meaningful and more passionate and more abandoned relationship to you. That our devotion be a consuming fire that those things which stand at enmity to the very love that we would have for you would be completely decimated as we seek you now in your word. And in this, Lord, as we look at something that transpired now nearly 4,000 years ago, nearly 2,400 miles or 2,400 kilometers away, yet here, God, it is just as pertinent today as it has ever been. Keep this from simply just being a story, a fable, but the true history that it actually is. And minister to us, God, where we need to be ministered to. Not because we deserve it, but because you are a God of grace. So I pray for that fresh filling of your Holy Spirit that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do, that you would minister to every one of us, all within this time now. And Lord, I just pray that we would have fun in your scripture. It would burst open and come alive and minister profoundly. So have your way now, we pray. We commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I would say this afternoon, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Certainly not me nor anything else. Now here's where we're at in the situation. The, the, this particular chapter, and again, we are in the middle of a man's life that we know as Abraham. Although, and, and, and why don't you turn that down just a little bit, Mike, if you would, just that'll kill a lot of that low-end problem. And I'll just talk later. Thank you. We're in the middle of a man's life. His name is Abraham. Now, he's just gotten called Abraham last chapter. We were introduced to him in essence in ch- at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12. And, and by that point, we had already gotten to the halfway mark in history as we'd looked at from creation to that point and now this man's life. And this man gets called, according to the book of Joshua in chapter 24, out of an idol-worshipping house in the Persian Gulf in the place called Ur, uh, which is in the Sumerian culture basin. Now, there are gods that are worshipped for just about everything, and a god speaks to him and tells him that he wants to leave him, to leave his family, to leave his culture, to leave his identity, to leave his securities, to leave it all behind, to follow this God that he only knows by voice at this moment that said, follow me. And yet he doesn't do that. Now, we don't even have record of when God said that. And the reason I say that is because we read that this man will leave there and instead of basically heading due west, he heads actually north to the area of Syria, to the area of Hlem. And he, and he goes there with his father and with his nephew, Lot. Now, it is there that his father will pass away, and it's at that point we read that he is 75 years old when he leaves Haran to head south into the area that we know today as Israel. And as he heads south, he still takes with him this nephew, Lot. Now, understand, God said, listen, follow me. I don't want anything, I don't want anything to get in the way of you following me completely. I want to be your identity. I want to be your passion. I want to be your security. I want to be your hope. And Abraham is on his journey, this journey to discover who this glorious God is. And yet, two different times before this chapter, we read that the Lord appeared to him. Ra'ah. Ra'ah. 
And the term, in essence, simply means to be seen. And that's a really odd thought, that somewhere in all of this, twice before this, once in chapter 12, verse 7, as he heads down and God says, as he heads finally into the land that God had promised him, though he didn't know where that land was when, God, when he initially had heard God call him, God says, now stop, look here. Look at this place. Now understand, the man was known as a man for his altars and his tents. That was what we know about Abraham. It was always a place that was sort of a pilgrim heading on and finding these places and encountering God often serendipitously. And all of a sudden, he's in this area. And what difference is it from the other areas he's known? It isn't like all of a sudden he stops somewhere and there's a big sign that says, Abram, you are here. This is where you've been waiting for. He just is following. And all of a sudden, he stops somewhere and God says, hey, look around. This is what I'm going to give you. And what would that be like as you're sort of wandering and you're following them and all of a sudden, boom, you stop at this spot and God, we read, appears to him. Same word, ra. The idea of God actually being seen. What does he look like to this man? I, I, I have no idea. God doesn't tell us here. I mean, we read that he dwells in inapproachable light. How can Abram see a man or a God that is infinite, that the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, and yet he dwells in an approachable light, but he's viewing this guy without his eyeballs exploding in his head. I just have to say that God knows how to present himself to someone so that that doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, in this particular text, what we read is that he sees three mortals is the term that he sees. God choosing to present himself, if you will, like a human being. What a wild thought. But it isn't for us as Christians. But to sit in, if I were just, again, reading Scripture, as if I had no particular prejudice or no instruction before this, and the first book that I read was the book of Genesis, because it's the first book of the Bible, and I'd gotten to this point. There's a point in me where I start to look and go, oh, wait a minute. God chose to present himself like a mortal. That's the term in the Hebrew. He just presented to present himself. He made this choice to appear to Abram, now named Abraham, as a human being. Now, if I were to follow that and I'd get to the book of Isaiah where it tells us, for unto us a son is born, or for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the, and the kingdoms of the government shall be upon his shoulders. And I go, the son born, that this, this Messiah that they're promising. And then I get all the way to the, to the Gospels and I start looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I see that God chooses to be born in the flesh. And I go, well, I should have saw it coming. Because God had already shown himself in the flesh to this man here, twice before. And in chapter 12, verse 7, God just appears. And, and again, who knows what he looked like? And he, and he just says, look, I'm going to give you this land. In chapter 13, that will be the smoking oven that, that consumes the sacrifice. And then in chapter 17, we read that the Lord God appeared to him again. And this time he says, I'm God Almighty, El Shaddai. And what would it be like to be looking at something, someone, and have that someone that is, that's visible say, I'm Almighty God, for which Abram falls on his face. And then God says, let's start working on you a little bit. I mean, we've been working on you for a while, but let's do it now by giving you a name change. We're not going to call you Exalted Father anymore. We're going to call you a Father of Multitudes. Why now? At 99? Because now we're about to enact what I've promised you more than 24 years ago when I told you you would be a dad and you were 75. And at this point now, we read this is the third time that the Lord appears to him. Now, I'd like to challenge you. When I first read this, and I read it, and I'll be honest, with prejudice because of what I'd already been taught and so forth, that, or just to be honest, by the culture that I'd been in, the Christian counterculture, I I'd gotten to this point where I just kind of felt like he just was just a super hospitable guy. You know, he sees kind of three people walking by and he's sitting at the tent in the cool of the day and he's sitting in the tent and sort of, and he sees these three guys and he comes running over and he's like, you guys need to stay with me. I got some, and then he runs over and he tells his wife behind the tent, hey, honey, make some food, you know, and he gets and he takes the food and, 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 but there's something beyond it when I look at this, because when I get to this text, well, follow it with me. Because it tells us in verse 1, the Lord appeared. In verse 3, he calls him, notice, my Lord. 
He doesn't call him my lords, which, by the way, in the next chapter, a couple of those, we'll find out that the two that this guy, this God is traveling with are angels, because by the next chapter, we'll say, and then the angels showed up there. So that's who they are. And yet, look at it beyond that point. In verse 13, it says, the Lord said. Verse 17 said, the Lord said. Verse 20, it says, the Lord said. Verse 22, it says, Abram stood still before the Lord. Verse 25, he says, as he's speaking to this individual, and he says, shall not the judge of the earth do right? He's speaking to this person that's visible, and he's calling him the judge of the earth. In verse 27, he says, and twice he'll say this, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I kind of get the idea that he thinks he's talking to the Lord. And there's something really strange here. It appears to me then that he recognized them. That somehow in this, these individuals are walking and he looks and he sees this individual and he says, that, that's the Lord. And it drives him to all of this behavior that we see in the chapter. Including this point of haggling by the end of it as if they were bargaining over a price. And I think, what would that be like for us? To recognize the Lord. And and understand, I'm I'm, I'm not studying this for the purpose of just having something to say to you. I'm saying because I want to be changed by the scriptures. I want to be molded and shaped. And there's some things I really learn about this individual as I look at this. Verse 1 again. He's sitting at the terebinth trees of a place called Mamre. For what it's worth, Mamre means vigor. And it's interesting because it is real, It is opposite a cave. I'll know that by chapter 23, verse 19. And the only property that Abraham will ever buy, because he lives in tents, will be the burial plot for his wife, where he himself and his son Isaac will be buried. It's called the cave of Machpelah. And it is opposite this area. Now, memory is up on a ridge. And as it's up on a hill... By the way, it's kind of important because hills tend to be a good place to make caves. Perhaps you're aware of that because it takes at least a good story to carve into it. And so he's up on this hill, and in between him is this valley. If I can do it in its simplest sense, Israel is basically four land strips, and there are basically vertical land strips. If we were to look at it this way, and this is the ocean, you'd have the ocean. It's the, the Mediterranean. It would be this way. This is the Mediterranean Sea. You'd have the coast, and then you'd have a set of, of mountain ranges, by the way, for instance, on that particular area, you'll have um, what we'll call the Western Ridge. And then you have the Jordan Valley, which, by the way, are two tectonic plates that meet. In other words, it is literally a fault zone. It's the lowest place on Earth. is the Dead Sea as a result of that. And then there's a set of hills on this side. So you have the coast, set of hills, then this bridge, and this set of hills. And what you have down here now is on that first set of hills is this area overlooking that valley. That area that overlooks the valley is this area that we're talking about here that we would call today Hevron. Now, Mamre, he's sitting up on this ridge, and he's able to see from this ridge, he's able to look down into the valley that his nephew went into. It is important to recognize that his nephew, and he had to split because they became so wealthy, the land couldn't sustain all of their livestock, so they said, we better part ways. And Lot takes a look, and Abram says, look, wherever, wherever, wherever you choose, I'll just go the opposite. And Lot looks, and he sees the valley, and it's lush, and it's rich, and it's green, and he says, I'll take that. And so Lot goes into the valley, but the problem is, is that somewhere down the line, Lot doesn't stay there. He winds up irking his way into the city. Now, I don't know about you, but city seems like a really strange place for a farmer or a shepherd. I don't know. It's just maybe it's me. I mean, think about a guy saying, I'm a shepherd, and he lives somewhere in Camden. And I tend to think, well, shouldn't there be sheep or flocks or herds or something? I mean, if you're a rancher... And that's kind of the idea. He moved into the city. I don't know what happened to all of his flock at this point. And he brings lots of people with him. And as he kind of heads into this place, this is a place that gets taken captive by a handful of other kings in a political maneuver. And Abraham has to go and rescue his, his nephew. And he takes back all this stuff. And then Lot, in the, in, the, in the sheer ignorance of this man, goes back into the city where he came from instead of going, whoa, that was a wake-up call. I probably shouldn't have gone in there. And at that point, Abram is able to sit up on this ridge and be able to see this valley where all of this wickedness is taking place. Now, as that's the case, it's a constant reminder that that's where his nephew is. And I wonder if, if Abraham even thought that his nephew was righteous or not. 
I mean, as he goes into the bargaining table at the end of this, I mean, does he really, does he, does his lot, I mean, because if there's a destruction of the city, if this place is marked out for destruction, and his nephew's there, is there a part of you that thinks, and i got to go get my nephew out, or, well, what's it going to take for you not to destroy this place? And, and so here's Abram, and he sees these individuals walking by. And as he sees them walking by, notice his response right away in verse 2. It tells him that when he saw them, his eyes, he looked up, he saw three men standing behind him. The, the, the word men here is the Wakandian. It's the word for mortal. So he sees three human beings standing before him, or at least the form of it. And when he saw them, notice he ran. One thing that's pretty brilliant about this whole text is going to be seeing the urgency of what Abraham does. Notice, by the way, again, in verse 2, he ran to the door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. In verse 6, it'll tell us he hurried, and then he said, quickly make ready. In verse 7, he ran, and at the end of verse 7, he hastened. This guy was in a hurry. I also want to remind you, how old is Abram at this point? He's 99 years old. Now, I'm not too sure how quickly Abram is running at 99. I don't know if he's just kind of going, okay, okay honey, come on now. Let's get some cake, Nate. Where's get, I'm going to get caught. I'm, going to, I'm running. I'm going to get caught. Or... Or if this guy is actually hightailing it. Because what's interesting is even after this story, he's going to pull that whole she's my sister routine. And this girl now is only 10 years younger than him. Which means she's, she's eking on 90. And he looks and goes, honey, you're going to still have to tell her you're my sister because you're a hot thing. And I just think how weird that must be for a woman that old. I mean, I don't know if that's flattering or, or, or it's just, wow, it's just habit now. But what's interesting is even more amazing to me is that that woman is going to get taken into the harem of another king. He looks and goes, whoa, she is a, she's a hot thing after all. And I think, wow, what a wild thought. And, and here on this, he's hastening. He's in a hurry. And, and, and what's interesting is as, as we go into this, as he goes, and notice what he says. For what it's worth, this word bowed, notice it in verse 2 that he ran and the first thing he did is he threw himself down before him. Now, if you are offering hospitality, there are ways to do that. Usually, to be honest, you offer a kiss. That's your way of saying you are welcome in my home. Now, that's not the way we personally say it, so if we ever invite you over, don't be afraid. However, in this particular culture, the idea is my heart and my arms are open. Why? But to bow yourself genuinely so shows obeisance. And that's what it shows that somehow I'm willing to submit myself to your authority at this moment. As a matter of fact, the word is the word shecha. And though in chapter 22 in the English Bible, we will find it's the first time the word worship is used. It's the word shecha. The most common word used in the Hebrew for worship is this word and this is the first place where I see it in all of Scripture, is here where this man sitting in the heat of the day under, in the shade at, the, at, the, at the, den, uh, the door of his tent sees these men walk by and runs over and, in essence, worships this man. Psalm 5, verse 7. I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy and in the fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Same word. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the nations shall come and worship before you. Same word. Psalm 29, verse 2. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Same word. Psalm 45, verse 11. Because he is the Lord, worship him. Same word. Psalm 95, verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. The word bow down there is the word kauda. That's the physical action. Let us kneel, the word barak, before the Lord God our maker. The word worship is the word shecha, and it is introduced here as he seems to have recognized, and as he bows down, he says, my Lord. Now, I've got to tell you, it seems to me, for whatever reason, on the journey that I'm on, as I'm learning more about this beautiful God of the Bible, falling more in love with Jesus, there seems to be one verse that just kind of gets me in the throat. And this is the verse this week for me. It doesn't have to be for you, but it is for me. He says, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, don't pass by. Don't miss this. It appears to me that this individual is on his way somewhere. He's going to do something. 
Abram sees him and recognizes him and says, Lord, my Lord, first of all. Not just Lord, not just God, not just some great cosmic mist out there that someone can tap into, but you are my Lord, my boss, my king, my master. If you really are that, then you really are. If I have found favor, the word is chin, second time in Scripture used. Does anyone remember where the first time that was used? It was with Noah, when it said, Noah found grace in the sight of God, when God introduces the word grace. This is our second use of the word grace. If I found grace in your eyes. Now understand again, grace is something you couldn't possibly deserve. Grace is reliant on the kindness of the giver, not on the deservedness of the recipient. The more we try to focus on how deserving we would be of grace, the less graceful we make the giver, if you think about it. And we can do that. We could really just try to make it seem like we were 99% there and God tossed in the 1% and we paid our debt. Where the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And by the way, what you've learned is, I'm sure by now, dead people don't revive themselves. They just can't do that. They need outside help. There is no way they are completely incapable of reviving themselves. And it would take one who has power over life and death to change that. And this is the case here. If I found favor with you, if grace is really the thing that binds us, please don't go by. Now understand that every one of us, I am convinced that God is more interested in our relationship than he is in a task. Although the Western world, I will have to say, is a lot more into getting the task done. And then you go somewhere near the Middle East or the Far East and you feel like nothing ever gets done. Now there are some places where the culture is relatively lazy and things just don't get done because they don't get done. Now, on the other side of it, there are places, here's a classic example, and it is, it's still in the Western world, Paris. For whatever reason, every time my wife and I have gone to Paris, and we haven't gone there much, it isn't like we're jet set, but we've gone there on a couple occasions, and we go out to eat. The two things that seem to always stick out to us, first is how ridiculously full of smoke it is, wherever we are, but the second is that we can go, we can get our food, and everything is relatively prompt, but the moment we get our food, it seems to me like the waiter or waitress goes on vacation goes on holiday somewhere because it takes us three hours to find our bill. And we don't know how to say, the bill, please. But you just can't find them anywhere. And they just assume that if you're going to be there, you're not there for 10 minutes. You're not there. Now, as a, as a traditionally an American, we like, we like fast food because food's a task. Man, that's like the reason we like fast food is it's like, here's, here's the box to tick. Get fed. Whoop, 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 whoop. Done the box let's move on to the next thing it's a job to get done and then you go to the middle east and someone says come on in oh we've made you this spread and you're like i'm never going to get this done and they're like done what done and then you go to a place like you go to a place like italy or sicily and you realize you're glutted and they've even, they've only brought out the appetizer and part of it is they just want to sit there and go now secundi which means this is the real thing sorry you were full on the other and they were impressed with how much of the appetizer you ate. And then they're like, now, they're like, oh, God, please help me, you know, enlarge my borders. And, and then they sit there and then they just want to talk, you know. And I, and I think that's kind of why espresso became a really big deal in Italy, in my opinion, is because you've eaten so much, you're in a food coma and you need something to slightly jolt you out of that if you're going to communicate to the person across the table. Otherwise, you just stare and that kind of, semi-happy, semi-painful state. And, and then, they're, you know, they, oh, tell me about life. And, and there's something about that. We just had the privilege this last week of getting to, starting to get to know this Lebanese family in our neighborhood. And I've got to tell you, I mean, from the beginning, they are just so gloriously Middle Eastern. I mean, I brought in my girls and one of the, the older gals, and I shouldn't even call her that, but she's just older than the young gals. Um, comes over and sees Ruthie for the first time, chases her around the post up in, in, their, in their restaurant, and then grabs her and just starts kissing her. And Ruthie just kind of looks at me like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I'm just smiling. And, and, and by the end of the night, when we're thanking the Lord, and we always do that with each of our daughters and with my wife, what are the things we are thankful for? We want to thank the Lord that, tonight for them. 
And, and I'm like, Lord, you know, and I'm, I'm talking. And, you know, it's, isn't it awesome how sometimes, you know, people could just come over and just fill you full of love like that? And my youngest says, well, that's not always a good thing, you know. And, and, but there's, you could just tell you just had an end to their heart from the beginning of it. And there's just, you know, and, and you can't go in there for a quick tea. You know, you go in there and you sit and you talk and they and here are oh here are our kids and here's our here's my nephew and she calls me mom and then you're like, Oh, that's weird. No, that's just the way you know and you're like, wow and wow, I'm getting an awful lot of information and then they start asking questions that are really personal and you're like, Hmm, should I tell you know, and, and they're they're just like, Let's let's be and and I just think it's so beautiful and brilliant and here there's this place where, and, and again, there's this urgency, but in this urgency, there are these people that are kind of heading by. And, 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 and Abram here isn't trying to get a task for a moment. He's just like, he wants to get attached, not a task. And, and he's, he's like, look at it. If you're going to walk them, don't walk them by. Could you, could you stop here? And, and I realize every morning that I wake up, since I started taking a look at this text this week, my mornings have changed, sincerely, every one of them. Because I, I feel like in the morning, the Lord's like, how would you like to just spend the day? Remember yes, last week, was, God says, I'm all, God Almighty, walk with me. Remember how that was last week? And, and you realize, this is God now walking, and he's going, he's giving, and everyone's like, you were the God I walked with. You had, you invited me to walk with. Can, can you come in now and stay with me? And I realize, in the morning, I wake up now, sincerely, and I'm like, Lord, I know I found favor in your sight. And just don't pass me by today. I mean, not in the sense of don't pass me by with blessings and all that, but God, I know that there's a world you want to touch and there's a, there are things you want to reveal to me and there's ways you want to shape and mold me. God, don't let me try to jump out of that. And what if it were right now that God blew the bugle? Not the one that says, all right, here we go, we're going home. But the one that says, I'm going to change today London. I'm going to start in Camden and I'm going to start by changing everyone's life. Who's in? How natural it would be for somebody of us to go, well, I can't wait to see how a pastor steps up for that one. And it's, you know, or well, I think that person's probably gifted for that. And, and what you're actually saying then is, Lord, and this is what I find interesting, is if our view of God is different than he, than he is in Scripture, we're actually saying the opposite. What we're saying is, God, if I found favor in your sight, pass me by. Don't put me on this list. Don't make me have to do anything. Don't make me embarrassed or have to approach a stranger or whatever. Hey, if you really love me, if I found grace, hey, kind of keep me out of this. And, and, and somehow, strangely enough, Abraham seems to be the opposite. He seems to be like, look, at if I found favor with you, you were the God who said, I'm God Almighty, walk with me. I think kind of you're into a relationship with me. So, hey, if I found favor, don't pass me by. And then I've got to tell you, having gone, and it isn't like I've been in every country at every time and, and all that, but I've been around the block a couple times now. And one thing I've learned about every religion in the world but Jesus, is there's two things, and, and tell me if this makes sense. The first is the issue of who makes the first step. According to what I've studied and, and, and having read these other books before I even became a Christian, because the last thing I wanted to be was a Christian because of my misconceptions of it. And, and I started reading and I realized in every case, you kind of made the move and God responded. I mean, you, you did a lot of good works and maybe God said it was enough or you were a good enough person and maybe God said it was enough or, or maybe you were kind of nice enough and you did this and you, and you beat yourself and you fasted and you, you did this and you took your trip here and you, you were kind to this or whatever. And in the end of it all, maybe, maybe, maybe it was acceptable. In other words, you were responsible to make it happen. God was responsible to respond. And then I read the Bible and the Bible was... God did it. He made me. He chased me. He pursued me. His Holy Spirit plagued me and goaded me. And it was God that did all the work. And it was my job to respond. I go, that is revolutionary. How many, how many religions are there? There's just two. There's the one where man makes the first move and everything fits. And then the other one where God makes the move and he wants me to respond. That's the idea of a groom and a bride. And he calls us the bride, not the groom. That's revolutionary. But then the other thing I've noticed, and this, by the way, this started when I was sitting actually in India. <laughs> we had arrived in Calcutta, and I see this man, he's in, his, he's in his 90s, he's naked and rolling down a hill with pieces of broken bone and glass, 
that he himself had put there. And I asked, what in the world is this man doing to one of the, the people who live in, in, in Calcutta? And they say, oh, well, he's um, actually worshiping Kali, which is from which the, the city is named after. Kali's a god of destruction. And he does this so that Kali will not destroy the city. And, I, and so I'm asking, and I'm trying not to be offensive, but I, I'm sounding like a third grader saying, um, so he's destroying himself so that the city doesn't get destroyed. Is that how it goes? And his worship then is destroying himself? Yeah, that's, that's basically it. And it occurred to me something, and that is when you have you doing all of the work with God being the responder of learned, you kind of worship God to keep him away. I mean, as I read these other books, you do all this stuff because God's such a wrathful, vengeant, angry God who's no real interest in relationship with you. He's just an interest in whether or not you pass the test. And the end of it all, what you're saying is, because you're so angry, because you're so mean, because you're so righteous or just as, but in a weird and warped sense, if I could do all of this, will you stay away? And that's exactly the opposite of this. I realize I don't worship God to draw him near. I worship God because he is near. See, he worshiped here because he saw him, because he was there. He didn't go, hey, I'm sure you're here somewhere, and if I just worship, maybe you'll come. He's like, you're here, and I want to worship you because you are here. And I think, what a revolutionary thing for me to say, God, I want to love you because you first loved me. That's you making the move. I was your enemy. You died for me. I owed you when you paid my bill. How does that work? And I responded to that. If I found favor, please don't pass me by today. If there's something you want to do to change this world, I just want you to know I'm volunteering. When the bugle is blown, I want to be on the line. I want to be on the front line. I want to be the one that when Jesus says, hey, look, at the, the harvest is plentiful. And I really do believe most of us just don't believe the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Would you pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers? And if you're anything like, like I had been in times of my life, I'd be like, yes, all right, Lord. Oh, Lord. Send laborers. Like, I can think of a few people that will probably, Garrett, send Garrett, Lord. Garrett, you know, he can grab his guitar and get kind of funky. And, and then just send Garrett and, you know, and, and send Landon because, you know, people swoon when Landon speaks. Oh, send Landon. And send Trista, Lord, because, because Trista makes people giggle and they can then be giggle into the gospel, you know. And, and that would be so cool. And, and God, just, and while you're at it, just go ahead and, oh, wait, and just, Send Amber, because Amber could like do some cool dance. And uh, yeah, and God's, God's going, and he's knocking the whole time. And I'm going, Lord, and, and, and again, I'm like, like, I'll answer that in a minute. I'm still praying that God will send people. God, send people. And God's going, hello, hello. I'm going, yeah, God, just go ahead and send people. And then, but in the scripture, in both cases, God says, the labor, though the harvest is so plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's pray. Let's pray that God send people. And they're like, yes, God, send people. And he goes, Go! And you're like, go. What, what do you mean go? Well, you prayed. Well, yeah, I prayed that God would send people. And he's like, are you not a person? Well, but I'm not like the person. He goes, you weren't the person who prayed. Do you guys, part of the praying is you're actually saying, all right, I'm available now. But have you ever had that? If you live long enough to have a relationship with anyone that gets busy, I don't know if I'm the only human being that's like that. And you're like, hey, do you got a minute? And, and really, we don't want to hurt the other person to say, no, we don't. So we say, yeah, but so like whatever, the least amount we can give of attention at the moment to still try to get something else done. And, and, and you, you start talking and they're nodding and you kind of know at that moment, it's vacant. They're real, they're, they're, they've done this and this is as far as, I've got the bobblehead. I've got the attention bobblehead. And then you start saying things like, so I was thinking about covering myself in peanut butter and chasing dinosaurs and running with feathers in my head. What do you think? And they're like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be good. And you're like, you're so not with me. So not in it. And I wonder how many times I pray like that. Like, God, you know, I'm, I'm, I mean, do you ever do that? Well, you're kind of praying, but you're still, part of your brain's still doing something else. And I remember writing down a long time ago, if you love someone, don't multitask. And there are times where, as a pastor, I'll sit, I'll sit down and I, just, you know, I feel like there's some task that needs to be done. And someone starts sharing. And then all of a sudden they drop this bomb about something that's going on in their life. And you go, oh. And at that point, it's like, whatever you were doing just isn't important anymore. You're like, oh, I am so sorry. Can we start over? Because I, I, 
whatever you got to get to this point, this thing's too important. I, I think I need the trip there again. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. But, and, and I think there are times where there's, with the Lord, and the Lord's like, look at I. I've got some really cool things I'd like to do today to show to you that I'd like to love on you and shape you and mold you and make you more amazed and amazing, more blessed and a blessing. And you're like, yeah, cool, cool, thanks, all right, um, cool, all right, amen. And what did I pray? What was I? What was I praying? I did pray. Did we pray? Did we pray? I think we prayed. Did we pray? God's like, I'm not really sure either. Please don't pass me by. Please. So stay. And, 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 and I won't go much farther. As much as I just want to dig into the whole chapter, there's just some... Well, obviously I've been having fun dancing with it. But <laughs> So Abraham runs in verse 6. He hurries to the tent and he tells his wife, hurry, quick. Quick, make three meals. Quick, make three meals. Make some cakes. Notice he says, fine flour, it's nice. Don't get that cheap flour out for that next neighbor that we really don't have, comes over too much. Whatever, it's, oh, come on now. And then he ran and he took from the herd and he took a good calf. Notice it's a good calf. He didn't take the thing that was sort of scrawny. I tell you what, I've had a couple meals lately. I, there was someone's like, what do you think of that? And I'm like, that poor cow, first of all, died of dehydration and died of, Died of starvation, man, that thing is, or obesity. In one case, I was like, that thing was, how could there be so much fat and it could be so dry? Um, and I'm like, you know, it's like, you know, kind of look, and there's like this thing, it's like, <laughs> kill that thing, kill that thing and give it. And it's like, but you know what? Let's be honest. Let's, I mean, can, I, can, I, can we all be honest that there are times where actually I think I'm giving God a feast and I wouldn't even eat it myself. I'm like, oh yeah, kill the scrawny fatty calf. Get out that that bad flower. And he's man, he's like, what do we have that's really, really good? What's my favorite? Yeah, let's take that. Wow, let's get that for the Lord. And it's interesting because did you notice that he doesn't tell Sarah that the Lord's there? It's interesting because he actually, when he presents the meal, the one thing that doesn't seem to show up on the menu are actually the thing he asked her to make. Now, I don't know whether it, it just doesn't, God doesn't mention it or whether she's not done making it or whether she's like, I'm not making another meal for you. It's hot out here. It's the heat of the day, I want to remind you. And you want me to cook? Come on. This Sandwiches. That's what I'm talking. Slap something in a pita. It's hot out here. He, I'm sure they want a salad. And he's going, make some, make some cakes. There's another funny thing in all of this, and I, I just love this scripture. But it says, Abraham ran, he took the herd, he handed it to a young man, because it's like, man, I'm, he's running, but he's not going to kill the animal. He's, he's given to someone who's a little more virile for that. And then it says, he hastened to prepare it, and he took butter and milk. That just means things curdled. More than likely, it's something called libam, which is sort of a really, really cool thing if you ever go to Israel with us. Um, it's, it's just kind of a, um, almost a yogurty, um, yeah, it's a yogurty cheese. And... Um, he prepared it, gave, brought it to him, which, by the way, is a bit of a, of a rarity. Uh, it's uh, fermented, or if it's well, it sort of uh, coagulates like that in a stomach, uh, in one that isn't currently in use for any other purpose. And, uh, you know, sort of set aside. It is like, you know, you give it to a cow, say, could I have that back? Don't make me kill you next, you know. It's, and, and, but it is something that's a little rare. I mean, it isn't like milk products are actually something you can keep very well. And so he's, he really is bringing out his good stuff. He's taken out the good stuff that he has. And, and, and it is interesting, though. It says he, he set it before him. And notice what it says. He set it before him. This is verse 8. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Now, who's the they? Well, it's the three of them. But here's the interesting thing. For those of you who are a little bit kind of Jewish savvy, is that he served them milk products and meat. I don't know if you saw that. So this was, his, this was a very unkosher meal, and they ate it anyways. I mean, this was basically a cheeseburger. And they ate it. Now, perhaps you're aware of the fact, um, or better yet, probably it's a good steak and some cheese. Um, but you're probably aware of the fact that some of you, that it, it tells us in Levitical law that you're not to cook a goat in its mother's milk. And people have taken that to the point now where you can't have milk products and meat in the same meal. Matter of fact, you have separate silverware, separate dishwashers, and separate tablecloths. That's kind of the idea. But in between this, 
are the three things that he asks. And we'll bring this around to pray and close. Because there's a real beautiful thing that he has to do. There's, I mean, there's obviously two issues that go on here. But here are the three things. Notice he says, before you leave, if you're going to stay, can these three things be offered? Water to wash, a tree for rest, and bread to refresh. Did you notice that? And I can't help but notice those three things. Because I realize these are the three things God offers me. I mean, Abram's trying to offer these things to this, to this Lord that he's, that he's standing before, which, by the way, is the tetragram, if you're familiar, that we would call Adonai. The first is that he says, let water be brought, that you can be washed. And I can't help but think, well, wait a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, it says that you were, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, though you were in a place of complete and abject filth, you were washed by the Spirit of God. And I can't help but think, what a glorious thought. And God says, well, how about if I bring water to wash you? The second one, of course, being the most profound, the word for what it's worth is the word sha'an, the word for rest. It's the word to mean to rely or to rest. And what is it that brought rest? It was a tree. Let a tree, you know, come and rest at the tree. Well, it doesn't take us long to recognize that in Hebrews 4. It tells us that Jesus Christ is our rest because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He took him and he hung him on a tree. That's what it says in Galatians, because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And since my sin deserved the curse, Jesus paid for the curse at the tree, at the cross. And I think it beautiful that God tells me, look at, come and find rest at the place where your price has been paid. But then finally, bread to refresh. And I can't help, of course, but think of Jesus that says that I am the bread of life in John chapters 5 and 6. And in 1 Peter 2, 2, where it tells us that to desire the pure milk of the word that we would grow thereby. And I can't help but think that how Jesus is our bread of life refreshes us. And his word being our daily bread, being that which refreshes us. And I realize that God is offering me cleansing, rest, and refreshment. Here, Abram's offering it to God. And I just can't help but think God is just so blessed by this. And yet God's thinking, well, this is actually something I'd be able to offer you. And let me ask you, have you been washed? Have you found rest? Now, the opposite of rest is restless. And I found this. If I don't rest at the cross, I will be restless. I will feel hungry, empty, comfortless, agitated, unsettled. And the Lord says, let's come back to the cross where all your bills are paid, where all your filth is over. Let's rest again. You know, if God created us for work, he would have made us on the first day and told us to start writing things down. He made it on the sixth. You're aware of that. Man was made on the sixth day, so his first full day alive was the seventh, and that was the day that God rested. Why did God rest? Because he was tired? You know, I've learned this having my own kids. Rest is a time when my children come and attack me. You know, oh, dad's laying down. That's the time to jump on him. Secretly, and I shouldn't say it. Well, it's, it can't be too secret. One of my children are in the room. I love it. Let's just rest together. And it's not to get a task done. To rest, you don't get tasks done. You just be together. It's like I made you, and now we have this time. Let's imagine God says, I made you, now I'm going to take the day off so we can be together. Are you finding rest? Are you refreshless, fatigued, tired, exhausted? I'm not talking about you've been working hard, but I'm talking about the idea that you're just drained. Scripture makes really clear that the farther we walk away from the Lord, the more futile our life becomes, which means we try harder and harder to get the same product and still get less and less the product, which means in the end of it all, I will infinitely work harder to get infinitely less results than if I just simply rested with the Lord first and then let him be my refreshment. I learned when I submit myself and surrender to the Lord, and I, here I am and I see the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, please, because I found grace in your sight, please don't pass me by Pick me up today. Put me on as your jersey. Do great things today. And then everything gets done. Those days where I'm like, you know, I've got, I got a lot to do today. Lord, can you just come back tomorrow? 
are the days when I find it's just futile and I'm exhausted and it gets nowhere. Wrap this around with me and at least we'll get to the end of this issue. And that's where he goes. He asks, where's Sarah? She's in the tent. Well, I just want you to know she's going to have a child. Now, it's fun because if you kind of get the picture of this, she's in the tent and she's apparently eavesdropping. So she's kind of back here listening. And he says, well, she's going to have a baby next year. And we read that she laughs notice within herself. It isn't like she goes, ha! You know, as one might think. She laughs within herself. Are you serious? And I, and I got to tell you, there's a part of this which squeezes my heart. And that's in verse 12 where Sarah laughs within herself and says, after I've grown old, shall I have, and the word is pleasure. For what it's worth, it's the derivative of the word Eden. It's like, you know, if there's one thing in life that would bring me pleasure, it would have been a baby. Now, we don't have that in our home. We have two children we adore, but we do in this sense. We have a daughter who wants a puppy, and she's wanted one for a long time. And she speaks, she's only eight, but it's amazing. A girl who's less histrionic than her sister can certainly get dramatic when it comes about a puppy. And then she gets in these moods where it doesn't matter what it is, she'll just bring it up. That's like, what are we having for dinner? Speaking of what we're having for dinner, are you getting me a puppy? And you're like, oh, what, you want to eat a hot dog? What are you saying? You know, and just, it's just everything. And you just, you just, but I mean, then she, and she, you know, she starts to fantasize. She goes, you know, she'll start like looking at image searches of, of puppies, you know, and she'll put them around her room and, you know, and I remember once as like I walked over and she decided to do this little kind of thing where everywhere I went, and I think it was after my wife was telling her the story of uh, this, the Stephen Curtis Chapman and his family where their daughter just kept saying, you need to adopt and left little notes. Well, our daughter caught the hint on that one, and I like lifted up my pillow and said, I need a puppy. And then I like walked over to the, the, the shower, and I opened up the curtain. I need a puppy. Everybody was like, oh, my goodness. But it's like, I mean, she's an 8-year-old. But really, to be honest, an 8-year-old is just a human being that's a little bit more open about the things we're more subtle with. And I, and I realized this particular woman for 89 years now has wanted a puppy, only it's a baby. And I know that's kind of a weird line to draw, but I mean, there's this passion. And she's like, oh, please don't play with me. Please don't play with me now. You have any idea how many times it hit that particular moment in the month? And, and I hated that moment because it became evident, evident, I'm not pregnant. I'm so tired of trying this. I'm so tired of this disappointment. I'm so tired of just going... And another one of these. Don't play with me now. And and you can just see like this 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 person that's just gotten to the point of being cynical. She was skeptical, but you're at this age, you're just cynical. It's the word, by the way, in Second Samuel verse one, when David says, "Weep over the death of Saul, because he clothed you in scarlet and gave you delights." It's the word for delight. And so the Lord said, why did Sarah laugh? And again, she's, he's talking to Abram. And, and why did Sarah laugh? I mean, and he says, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? I waited till it was impossible so that you knew that the only thing possible is the Lord. And so he's like, and then, you know, you're, you realize your wife's eavesdropping, right? And there's almost like you can almost hear her going, no, I'm not. You know, and, and he goes, look at why did she laugh? And, you know, is there anything too hard for the Lord? You know, she laughed. And all of a sudden from behind the tent, she's like, I didn't laugh. And then you just hear this guy, you hear the Lord say, yeah, you did. And that's the end of the conversation. I'm thinking, you know, and you kind of go, wow, that was a weird conversation. And here's where it ends for today. And we'll pick up the next part of this next week. Beloved, listen. The Lord has this beautiful habit of waiting until something seems impossible so that only he can get the credit for it. And strangely enough, he does it because he loves you. I learned this in the Gospel of John with a guy that was a really good friend of his named Lazarus in chapter 11. Because somebody comes to Jesus, and he's in a hurry too, and he says, this one in whom you love is sick. He's really, really sick. And that was enough. I mean, what's pretty evident is someone, people seem to notice that Jesus really loved this guy. And that, that wasn't a problem. This one, this one that you really, really love is, is sick. And we read, because, and he says, the sickness isn't going to end in death. He doesn't say it won't be the route. Because it isn't going to end in death. Well, you know, it's going to actually end in glory. <clears throat> and he goes, 
thing, appreciate the cool little, you know, fortune cookie moment. Can we, can we go? And, they, and we read, because Jesus loved him, he waited. Now, any of you actually think that that's the way you play it out with the Lord? It's like, because you love me, you're not going to wait right now, right? I mean, because you love me, now's the time. Hello, now's the time. We're done. We, 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 yes, no. And, and Jesus goes, look it, it's still possible now until Lazarus has been dead for four days. At that point, it's impossible. And now he's thinking. And now it's impossible. And at that point, you're like, okay, now, now Jesus, you must have. And that's when we discover that he's so much more than just a healer. He's the one who gives life. And it takes those kind of moments. We had to wait until we all thought we were going to die on the boat before we woke him up. And then it's like, don't you care? We are perishing. We're going to die here. And Jesus is like, well, I was just, I'm just sleeping here waiting for you guys to get me because now it's impossible. Now let me just ask you something as we go to prayer. Is there anything in your life that you just know the Lord should be doing and it's, not, it's, it, it's relatively impossible or it is impossible and you've gone from being skeptical to being skeptical, skeptical to being a cynic? You're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'll always have this sin. I'll always struggle with this now. I'll always have this weakness. This will always be here. I'm here to let you know. God's like, why'd you laugh? And you're like, I didn't laugh. And we would do the same thing. We'd put on our face. I didn't laugh. And God says, is anything too hard for me? You've just found a place where it's too hard for you now. And I'm here to let you know God is here to set you free from that. So I want to pray. But it starts with this. If you've been dead in your trespasses and sin, have you accepted the gift of Jesus? He's in hot pursuit of you. Why say no to him? He wants you. And if you have said yes to him, are you available? Are you asking him, if you love me, walk on by? Or are you saying, if you love me, come on in? Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. Oh God, how good how wonderful, how kind, how loving, how merciful you are. And God, I just want to pray right now that you just minister to us, God, please, right now where we're at, by speaking into our hearts, God, the truth about those areas we may have gotten skeptical about. Relationships that have always just stayed mediocre or soured or bitterness that someone else has to us or we have to them or weirdnesses or fears or sins that seem to hold us in bondage or whatever it be. God, I just want to pray right now that you remove from us that skeptical spirit. Remove from us that cynical spirit and replace it with a heart of faith. Nothing is too difficult for you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would show my heart, what you want to do, at least I know this, what you want to do is be with me first and foremost. But Lord, show me where I'm, I'm busy trying to make myself busy instead of available. And show me how I can actually be there at the tent door waiting in prayer so that when I do recognize, God, this is something you want to do, I would say, please don't pass me by. Put me in this. And I recognize it's impossible for me to make myself innocent, but you can do it. And you've done it by paying for it on the cross of your son, Jesus the Christ, who died and rose again. And right now, if you in this room or by the sound of this voice have never accepted this gift or you're not sure if you ever have, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you can agree with this prayer at the end, I ask you to do a confident and resolved amen. And what you're saying is, let those words be my words. So be it, let that be my prayer. I agree, that's my prayer now. And here it is. God in heaven, I admit to you, I am failed. I am I'm broken. I am not perfect. I am guilty. And, and that debt needs to be paid. But I believe that you so loved me that you paid that price on the cross of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross because that way all of my crimes could be paid for. My crimes against you, my crimes against other people. 
And in that, you died so that it could be relinquished. And then you rose again, Jesus, so that I could have a new life. And if you were really that in love with me, that hot in pursuit of me, and you only put, you put before me now the, the responsibility of responding to you, then I want to say yes. I say yes to your offer of love. I say yes to your relinquishing. Uh, my, I relinquish my life to you. And in that, Lord, that you cover and just wipe away my sins and my faults and my failures, and I give you the keys to my life and make and, and declare you the architect of my reinvention. Lord God, be the person who leads me, who reinvents me, who shapes me and molds me. Be my joy, be my peace, be my love. Because I'm giving myself to you. Lord, I pray for everything I hand off. Show me the blessing of how I've traded up by giving, giving it over to you to get you in return for it. And in that, I just want to say thank you for wanting me, for loving me, for being a God of grace. Thank you for not wanting to pass me by. Thank you for wanting me. So I'm yours. In Jesus' name, if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.